0: Hello, PWH, and welcome to this week's episode of this podcast, the PWH Pathway Home Podcast. I'm Pastor Kyle Bauer, and I am flying solo this week. I may be solo for a few weeks here, but um, in a few weeks, I'm going to actually bring my wife on the podcast. Yes, you are going to get to meet my amazing wife, Teresa Bauer, and we're going to talk about, for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about love and relationships, and uh, included in that is the aspect of sex. Our culture overpromises, oversells, and underdelivers when it comes to the relationship department, especially the sexual department. When, but all of those things are so so intertwined that you really can't. Uh, uh, you've got to you've got to take all of it in together. If you're going to come to a conclusion of what a healthy relationship looks like has to do with love, has to do with respect, has to do with communication, has to do with the sexual aspect and how God designed everything. So here's my starting point. All of you who are watching right now probably already know my starting point. My starting point is the Bible, of course. But Proverbs 3.19 says that God created all the universe by wisdom and understanding. He founded everything. So it's not that just, it's not just that God um, made everything and then stepped back. No, 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 no. It says by wisdom and understanding. It's not that God just uh, set everything in motion. And now, you know, he's kind of left us to our own devices uh, and, and pulled back somehow. No, 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 no. By wisdom and and understanding. So we have to understand that God didn't just make the universe, but He made the wisdom and understanding by which the universe is sustained. So He made everything, but He also made the way life was to be lived within His good creation, which actually makes total sense. How can you be a creator and not also create the way the creation was to work. It's like a, it's like a piano. You know, you want to use a piano like a bobsled, be my guest, but it wasn't really made for that. The maker of a piano made it to sit as a piece of artwork to be played by an artist. It's a uh, piano is beautiful and it has a certain way. It's going to be played a certain way. It's to be made and a certain way it is to be used. That is what the creator intended for it. If you want to use it like a bobsled, you want to try and attach wings to it and fly it like an airplane. Fine. You're not going to get very far and the things are going to end up being utterly destroyed because that's not what it was made for. In the same way, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the entire universe. Therefore, he also created the way that universe is to be used and how we as his creations are to live as part of his creation. He has a specific design. So when we talk about love, when we talk about relationships, we have to come at it from that point of view. Love is not as I define it. Love is not as the culture defines it. Love is as God defines it. Actually, the Bible says God is Love. So if God is love and by wisdom and understanding, he created the heavens and the earth, then perhaps he is also the definition of what makes love work. Now, since the 1960s, there was a huge revolution. It's called the sexual revolution that love was now being redefined. Love was being defined as, well, whatever I like and whatever makes me feel good and whatever, um, well, I mean, if it feels good, how can it be wrong? Am I right? If I feel something towards you, then why should that not be love and acted upon in some sort of sexual manner? And so the, the 1960s began um, a redefinition of what love is and it's, uh, of, uh, what love is in our culture. And in short, it's this. Love became synonymous with pleasure and sex. That's, that's why it's called the sexual revolution. And so here we are now, uh, 50 and 60 years later. And we have the culture in which we live, which was really spawned by this sexual revolution back in the 60s. And now we've advanced this definition of love is not just pleasure and sex, but it's whatever I choose to define it. So if I love somebody of my own gender, then that, well, obviously has to be expressed in some sort of sexual way. the ridiculousness of that is just almost unfathomable. Uh, You know, I love my mom. I love my dad. I love my brother. I love my sister. But there's no, you know, to, to, to connotate that there's some sort of sexual way. But in the culture today, You say, well, I I love that person who, you know, there's some sort of, uh, you want to marry him or you want to marry her, you want to get with him, you want to get with her. You know, we're, we're bisexual, we're transsexual, pansexual, we're all sorts of different types of sexual and everything has been over-sexualized. I said at the very beginning, just a few minutes ago that, uh, the culture has oversold and under-delivered in, uh, in the relationship department, the love and the sexual department. And so it's, everything has become so convoluted, so sexualized. And, and then you, you take the concept of love even further according to our culture. And that concept of love is, is diminished to, well, it's whatever I choose it to be. It's not just what makes me feel good. It's, it's whatever I choose it to be. And there's no way you can ever tell me otherwise. So if I love my pet... Then some some then I can marry my pet, and we need to have equal rights as my pet. If if I love the same gender, or if I love every uh, person, it's all automatically sexualized, and it's perverse and it's convoluted, and it is not the way God created the world to be lived in. It is not the wisdom and understanding by which He founded the world, and so to to really. Understand what makes life work. You've got to go back to what God says, and not what the culture has defined it as. You know, back in the '80s, there was this uh, a real popular song called "We're Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places." But that's that. You know, you, that's that's the culture's way of doing things and seeing things. And so you're we're we're looking for anything that'll make us happy, and then. And I've done this for years now I've done this since about for, since about 2013 it's, it used to be part of a class that I would teach and I encourage you to go do it look at the top ten songs in just about any genre of music uh, of of the of this year or last year or any of the previous years and I can guarantee you that the the top ten songs most of them at least seven or eight out of ten of the top ten songs in any genre have to do with Love. Most of them have to do with um, some sort of broken love or failed love. Now, if that's true of the top 10 songs for the last many, many years, and it has to do with you know he left me or she broke my heart or I'm going to get you back or some of them have to do with love of money or love of pleasure, but most of them have to do with some sort of failed relationship. Occasionally, you'll hear a a very nice song, of um, of some sort of successful love, uh, you know I love you, you love me, those kinds of songs that are they're they're just nice. But most songs are not like that. But the book of First Corinthians chapter 13 says that, uh, love never fails. Okay. So now let's look in our culture. How many marriages fail? Let's look, let's not just look in the worldly culture. Let's look in church culture. If love never fails and divorce is rampant 50% at a minimum, both in, in the outside culture and in the church culture, then, then there is some sort of disconnect uh, as to what we have defined love and how we have lived it out. If love truly, truly never fails, then we have failed miserably. There, that means there must be some sort of disconnect between the wisdom and understanding by which God founded the world. So we need to go back and rewind and redefine. It was years ago that I read a book uh, when I was in Bible college that really helped form my understanding of what people are looking for, what people need, and why they go into this this vast subject of love. And it's always been uh, interesting to me that when you look at all those top 10 songs like we talked about just a second ago, most of them are about love. Why are they about love? Why aren't they about something else? I really believe it's because God is love. Again, not in the way that these songs are defining it, but because God is love, and He's created us with such great capacities to love that there really is no higher concept in in God Himself, and thereby the the, the human construct, the our human cultures, than than just love itself. So when we feel loved and when we give love, there, there's a sense of completion and fullness. And I don't have, that's, that's. I'm not talking about marriage and I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about just the capacity for other people to be part of your world and you to serve them out of a full heart. And, and that's where, that's that's, now we're starting to touch on a little bit of what God created love to look like. This book I read back in Bible college was a guy by a guy named Larry Crabb, and and he he defines uh, people's needs in this way, that everybody has a twofold need. And, and this is true of all of humanity for all of time in every culture and every language group. We have the need for significance and security. Significance that my life is worth something and the security that I am loved. And so every part of our behavior is, is trying to somehow grab a hold of significance and security. Therefore, all of our behavior can be, um, can be designated to our search of that, uh, of that need in our life. So most often people run after relationships because, um, you know, in, in uh, an old Tom Cruise movie, he looks at the girl and says, you complete me. For goodness sakes, you completely, what a a terrible burden to place on another human being that I am the source of your identity. I am the source of your completion. I mean, it sounds nice, it sounds romantic, but when you really pull it apart, even just a little bit, the whole thing comes apart at the seams, and you realize that no human being can possibly be the source and foundation of somebody's identity and completion as a person. My gosh, I can't do that for my wife, nor can she do it for me, but we look for that significance. You, uh, I am worth something because I am with you, and I feel loved because I am with you, therefore, I need you. Well, what happens when that person leaves you? What happens when that person fails you? What happens if that person dies? What happens to you? You just come unraveled at the seams. Well, I need I need love. I need significance and security. So I'm going to be grasping, grasping, grasping. I'm going to be looking for anything and everything in which I can find it, which is why people bounce from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship, giving themselves away, in 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 the search of perhaps this person will will be enough for me. Perhaps, well, it's it's not so much so so our our our. The, the love that we sense we are giving or that we, we have in a relationship really isn't so much that we're giving, but it's our need to be loved that we're really searching for. And so when you have a love that begins to take from the relationship, eventually you're going to suck that relationship dry. Because the the love, well, oh yeah, we're in love. No, 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 no. It's you need to be loved. So you're taking, I need you. You're my identity. You're my foundation. You're my everything. You're my security. You're my significance. You're, and it just sucks the other person dry until, until the other person wakes up one day and says, I've got nothing left to give. I've got nothing left to give. This person's done all the taking. I've done all the giving, but Or or this person has tried to find their taking of that love from the other person and found that that person, because they're taking, really doesn't have much to give in return, and the thing falls apart. Uh, We'll get into probably next week about how that breaks down the entire sexual experience within a marriage and why sex is reserved for marriage. It's not because uh, God or the Bible is or or somehow uh, we're trying to steal fun away. No, it's actually designed for maximizing pleasure. But we'll get into that next week. So that's just a little commercial for next week. So if you want what sex is really about and what makes for great sex, tune in next week. So let's get back to the significance and security. So we 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 end up sucking the relationship dry and it, and it ends up falling apart. But God is love and his definition of love and the way love is lived out is very different than the way we have lived out love for, for said reasons. We, we try and find our significance and security. We end up bleeding the relationship dry and the thing falls apart and it becomes very self-absorbed, very, very self-focused. But the, the deception of all of that is that so often we think that we are in love. And, and what we're really doing is pursuing our pleasure or pursuing our own identity. And that's a taking love, not the love that Jesus gives. God defines love for us in the book of Romans. He said, um, God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Jesus also said, no greater love has anybody than this, than somebody would lay their life down for the friend. So let's just take a a, a very brief moment to to unpack those verses uh, very briefly. Um, First of all, in the passage in Romans, it says, while we are still sinners, another passage in Romans says, while we were enemies of God. In other words, so, so, so God shows his love to us while we were his enemies, while we were sinful, while we were completely opposed and the opposite of who he is and how he works and how he lives. We were the opposite. We were against him and still he found it worthwhile to give us his best so if we're his enemies and we hated him and we were living diametrically opposed to who he is, then what does that say about the kind of love that God gives? It says that it is a giving love, not a taking love, because there was nothing in us that could possibly sustain God. It's There's nothing from which God could, could draw off of or somehow fill himself with. There was nothing of that. We were opposed to him. We were his enemies. We were, we were the opposite of who he is. And he says, you are still worthwhile. And my love is so great that though there is nothing on, on a human side that is, that is truly worthwhile, I see you and I have defined you by myself. I have said that you are worthwhile. Therefore, you are worth my love and my love is my giving my best to you in order to redeem you and, and, and cause there to become a relationship once again with us. And Jesus uh, said, you know, no greater love than the person who lays down his life for his friend. Again, that is a giving love, not a taking love. It is a self-effacing love. It is a self-sacrificial love. It is a love that says, I am looking for the best in you, and I am going to put myself aside. So the Bible is defining love for us as, as completely giving, completely selfless, completely um, uh. That you love even when the person doesn't deserve it. Even when the person hates you, you love them back. Jesus also said that. He said, "Don't you've heard it said, Jesus said, uh, love your friends and hate your enemies. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies. He said, even people who don't believe in God love their friends. So what reward is there in that? But if you want to take love to another step, it's not what the culture defines it as becoming more inclusive in our own hedonistic pursuits of, well, I want this and I want this, and my sinful tendency is towards uh, homosexuality or bisexuality or transsexuality or or transgender. And so all of that needs to be included in love because God is love and love is love and No, 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 no. That is selfish and taking to the core. And it's birthed out of our own sinfulness. And and it's, it's, it's an attempt to try and draw love into a definition of what my sin and my fleshly desires are really trying to take for my own pleasure. And that's the exact opposite of God's definition of love. God's definition of love is it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with other people. And you give your best for other people. But how can you give your best for other people if your starting point is only a human-based love? My heart is not big enough for other people. The essence of sin is selfishness and pride and fear. At the end of the day, it's all about me. How can you possibly include other people when it's all about you? Therefore, the basis of your love cannot be in some human understanding because it's always a taking love. It has to be completely transformed by a relationship with Jesus Christ. It has to come from a heavenly source. Actually, there is a gifting of love that God gives. And it's his very presence. It's his his very nature that when we come to him on his terms, he fills us with himself. And now we have a capacity to love others on his terms, in his way, with his heart, with his power, and with his spirit that goes so far beyond my own selfish, sinful human limitations. I would actually argue and make a biblical argument that if you don't know God, you have a very minute capacity to even love at all, because life separate from God is loveless and it is self-focused. At the end of the day, that's what hell is. Hell is the place where God is not. And so if God is life, in hell there is no life. If God is our strength, in hell there is no strength. If God is love, well, a life or an eternity separated from God is devoid of love. I want to wrap this up uh, today talking about a book from the great theologian C.S. Lewis. If you've never read his book, The Great Divorce, it's one of my favorite books of all time. It is one of the most brilliant books ever written. And it's it's obviously, it's allegorical. It is, um, you can, gosh, you can read it in about three or four hours, and it is worth every minute of your time. I've read through it probably four or five times. Um, I actually don't remember exactly how, but about four or five times. Um, and I love it every time. And I glean something new from it every time it's, it's the great divorce is not about relationships. It's, it's about, um, the divorce between heaven and hell and the difference. So again, it is allegorical. It's, it's talking in metaphorical images. It's not to be taken literal, but the points he makes are brilliant and the imagery he uses are brilliant. So here's the concept. If you've never read the book, I'll give you the the two-minute breakdown. People in hell are put on a bus, and they're brought onto the borders of heaven. And and the people who are in heaven, uh, uh, many times are people that they knew in, in life on earth, are coming back out of heaven to meet them on the borders, to try to persuade them to come into heaven. Okay. Now I understand that's not biblical and people don't, that doesn't actually happen. I get it. But the, the point of the book is the conversations that people have and how people talk themselves out of going to heaven. Okay. So that, don't miss the point. Don't miss the forest for the trees. All right. So I want to read a, a brief, a, a brief part of one of the conversations. Now, one of the persons coming up from hell was a man and the lady coming out of heaven to meet him was his wife while they were on earth. Okay. So they're, they obviously had a kind of a crummy relationship on earth and they're trying to make it right. And she's trying to convince him to come with her. Okay. And so the whole point of the conversation, the guy is, he's a joyless guy. He's trying to blackmail her. He's trying to use his miserable attitude to infect her and cause her to come to hell with him, basically. Okay. So let me just read this. So they've had this long conversation up to this point, and and he says um, this, love. Do you even know the meaning of the word? How should I not? said the lady. I am in love. In love. Do you understand? Yes, now I truly love. You mean, said the man, you mean you did not love me truly in the old days? Well, only in a poor sort of way, she answered. I have to ask you to forgive me. There was a little real love in it, but what we call love down there on earth was mostly the craving to be loved. In the main, I I loved you for my own sake because I needed you. And now, said the man, now you need me no more. <laughs> but of course not, said the lady. And her smile made me wonder how both the phantoms, because they were they were uh, ghostly figures, how both the phantoms could refrain from crying out with joy. What needs could I have, she said, now that I have all? I am full now, not empty. I am In love himself, not lonely. I am strong, not weak. And you shall be the same. Come and see. We shall have no need for one another now. And now we can begin to love truly. That is some of the most brilliant writing and some of the most brilliant concepts on the love of God and how we are to love one another that I've ever come across. My love for you down here on earth is mainly my, my need to be loved. I I need something from you. It's the selfish taking love. But he says, but now I'm in love himself. God is love. I'm in God and I've experienced God. And now I'm not coming to you from a place of emptiness where I need to take from you. I am in God himself and he has filled me with such a deep, spiritual, pure, amazing love of his own presence that I don't need anything else around me. I just need him. And once I'm living out of a place of overflow, then I can truly start to love you for your own sake. I don't need anything from you anymore. I need him and he's given me himself. Therefore, I can love you for your own sake, not because I have to take anything from you. When we come to a relationship, again, this, this whole, the next few weeks we're talking about relationships, love and honor, respect, covenant, sex, all of that stuff. But when you come on this basis, I don't need you. I need God. God fills me and I'm coming at you with a place of overflow so I can love you for your own sake. I can love you even if you're my enemy. I can love you even if you give me nothing. I can love you just because God said you are valuable. And I can love you on that basis. You're going to find that relationships are going to start working. And they're going to start turning into the relationships that God always intended them to be. And you'll find that out of your giving Love overflow that you will actually start to receive love from people who are also living in the overflow of God's love who are giving it back to you, and it becomes this beautiful thing. That's what life is to look like. And you may say, Pastor, that sounds too good to be true. It's not, it does require work and it does require a heart transformation. But you come on the basis of Jesus. You come on what the Bible says love is, not what the garbage you see all around us. Let me pray for you as we end today. Lord God, I pray for everybody who's watching and listening to this right now. I pray that, Lord, they would have an experience with you, even as the book of Ephesians chapter 3 says, that the love of Jesus, which is too great to fully understand and know, that it would fill us, and that as we experience the height, the depth, the width, and the length of the love of God, that, Lord God, we would grow and be grounded and rooted, and that we would be so filled that, Lord, we would have extra to give to other people. Lord God, I pray that where people feel a lack of love, where they've felt rejection, Lord, I pray that they would run to you, and as they run to you, you would wrap them in your arms of pure and perfect love, driving away all fear, driving away all rejection and anxiety. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. We're going to continue this.